March of this year, first class of seminary graduates celebrated this event in St. Petersburg, in the Republic of Russia, a first in this century, a wonderful celebration that spoke of a new era, an era of freedom and of liberty. And on the evening of that celebration, we were returning from a reception together, a whole busload of us. And I was surrounded by all these Russian potential leaders. And as we approached the downtown area, we saw what I only see on the 4th of July, and that was fireworks. And as we crossed the bridge of the Neva River, we came to the central location, for these were being set off in the very center of the city. And so we unloaded the bus and we took our pictures, and we joked with each other that this was a fitting celebration for the graduating class of the Theological Academy of St. Petersburg. But it struck me as a patriot, and one who, who becomes on occasion choked up with one's own love for his country, that there was far more to celebrate there. For this was indeed a celebration when these young people could go out into the country and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ with freedom. Bring it to a nation that is searching for the truth, trying to frame a new form of government, considering those very concepts that were considered by our forefathers when they gave birth to the land in which we live. I still believe that this is the number one nation on earth. But I'm not a, a willy-nilly patriot that says my country right or wrong. Rather, I see my country under the hand of God, and we are responsible to him. And I believe that that's exactly what was in the minds of those who wrote the documents that we still respect and that still guide us. Yet there are many in this country who wouldn't agree with me. And our young people are not being told about it. In fact, the Department of Education of our government did a survey recently, looked at 60 different textbooks for the third and sixth grades of our grammar schools that are used to teach 88% of our students. And there isn't one reference in those books to our founding fathers. The liberal revisionists of our day have deemed this unnecessary, seeming to infer that it doesn't matter what the principles and the ideals were in the minds of our founders. For we simply have to live on the resources we have today and collectively enjoy all the prosperity that is ours without looking back on why this has all happened. 
Indeed, no institution grows to health and maturity. Be it a home or an economic institution, much less a government, unless there are underlying principles. And I'm afraid that today we are losing our way, that there is a possibility that we will forget our past. And lest we forget, I want to speak to you this morning on our national heritage. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I am of the opinion that when we began this country, we believed that God was our Lord. And I would like to look first of all at just a few facts about some of the people who lived then, who shaped the beginnings of our country and some of the institutions and what was said officially about our identity. First of all, there's Noah Webster, a soldier of the American Revolution, a man who was a judge and a legislator who wrote prolifically on government and history and science one of the first to ever write on astronomy. We know him for his dictionary, which he wrote to bring our people together with common spelling and pronunciation. The interesting thing about the dictionary is that for over a hundred years, it carried on the front pages, which normally would be left blank in a book which you purchase, he filled it with all Bible texts. And then there was always printed a foreword to the book that told about him as an individual and what he wanted it to say and what he wrote in it was not about why necessarily this book was written, but who he was and what his commitments were. And he told about how he found Jesus Christ and what that meant to him as he integrated his faith with his life. And in the back of that dictionary were published moral stories based on the scriptures. Now that's the way the dictionary was published for over a hundred years until all of that was more recently deleted. Then there were Sam and John Adams, they came from the Boston area. And Sam Adams believed in a strong central government and John believed in, in more of a, of a local central for power and direction. And so they sparred together and wrote letters back and forth. But then there are the letters recorded, the one basic thing in which they were both agreed and they admitted this publicly and they wanted the nation to know that beneath all of their opinions lied the ultimate authority of the Word of God. And on that authority, they said, this nation should be founded. And there was Patrick Henry, you remember him, 1775, he said, give me liberty or give me death. Actually, that was part of a prayer to God. For Henry was a very devout man, 
who also wrote this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly and too often that this great nation was founded by Christians on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our heritage. Those were our forefathers. In 1779, some Indian chiefs from Delaware came to George Washington and said, would you allow our sons to be educated in your schools? And Mr. Washington assured them that the Congress would treat their sons as they were treating their own. And then he went on to say this to those Indian chiefs, you do well to learn our arts and our way of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people. What strikes me about this is that the faith of these men were so integrated in what they did. And they talked about their faith. And they lived it and they wanted the scripture to be the basis of all that they did. There's Thomas Jefferson and so many people try to tell us that Jefferson, you know, was not a Christian. And I'm not going to debate whether he was or he wasn't because there is much evidence that he was not what you would call an evangelical Christian, but at the same time, he had great respect for the scriptures. He was president of the United States and president of the school district of Washington, D.C. at the same time. And so they looked to him to formulate the basic principles upon which education would be built in the District of Columbia. And right in the center of the curriculum, he placed the Bible and Watts' hymn book, a hymnal that contained in its words the whole message of the scripture. And this is what he said. I have always said and always will say that the student's perusal of the sacred volume will make us better citizens. There was no question in the minds of our fathers that the scripture should be the fundamental and overriding authority for the morals and the ethics and the behavior of the people of this nation. And this was after the passage of the First Amendment by those who were instrumental in its writing. Well, we won't talk about Jedekiah Morris and John Quincy Adams, Benjamin Rush, that great surgeon from Philadelphia, Governor Morris, who actually physically wrote the Constitution and wrote two more books to send to France to help them frame their Constitution, in which he repeatedly pointed them to the Word of God. We haven't time to talk about Fisher Ames and the rest of them. Let's look at a couple of our institutions of that time. Amazing things happened in those days. You remember from your history courses, the Northwest Ordinances? 
they documented how the territories could become states and affiliate with the Union. In the third article of the ordinances, which were written before the Constitution and then readopted after the Constitution and the First Amendment had been adopted, so that it is, was, was valid through the early history of our country, the third article prescribes how the educational system will, be, will function in the territories who apply for statehood. And there are a couple of requisites. Schools must teach, they said, biblical religion and morality as well as knowledge. And so if you turn to the application for statehood of Ohio in 1802, you discover they used the wording of this ordinance, as does Mississippi in 1817, and Nebraska in 1875, all conforming to this ordinance and setting up their public education systems based upon the word of God. That was the accepted norm and that's our heritage. In the early 19th century, Stephen Girard immigrated to this country from France. He wanted to donate $7 million to establish a school in Philadelphia. Well, that's a lot of money. I was thinking of the Louisiana Purchase about that time. $7 million bought a lot of real estate. The school he wanted to build, however, was on his basis, not in keeping with our heritage. What he said was, I want a school in which we teach morals without religion. And secondly, I do not want any clergyman ever to set foot on this property. Well, Daniel Webster, noting how diametrically opposed this was to all that had transpired and was transpiring among the territories, went to the Supreme Court, argued the case for three solid days, and it's all documented. And when it was all through, this is what the Supreme Court decided, in part. Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation, especially in school? its general precepts expanded to its glorious principles of morality. Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly and perfectly as from the New Testament? That, dear friends, is our heritage. The Supreme Court documenting for us the fact that the scriptures are the real foundation the principles on which this country rests. 1892, the Teachers Union, National Union, celebrating Columbus Day, 400th anniversary, wrote a book. And in the book, they explained why the, the lower grades of school were being transferred from the churches to the state. And it was a matter mainly of expense and numbers and when they were finished, they made some comments. This is what the teachers union said just a hundred years ago, quote, 
If the study of the Bible is to be excluded from all state schools, if the inculcation of the study of Christianity is to have no place in the daily program, and if the worship of God is to form no part of the general exercise of these public elementary schools, then the good of the state would be better served by restoring all the schools to church control. Another institution saw very clearly the basis on which our educational system and our nation had been founded. As late as 1931, the Supreme Court supported Holy Trinity Church in the United States versus McIntosh and said, I quote the Supreme Court, we are a Christian people acknowledging with reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God. And that's a marvelous heritage and our children ought to know about this. For you cannot build a nation as Benjamin Franklin said, without the blessing and the direction of Almighty God. And our forefathers had no intention of doing so. When the immigrants come to our shores, even to this day, I honestly believe they come here to celebrate a new freedom in which there is moral integrity. And they come here to drink of the wonderful waters of life, crystal clear liberty for all, equality among us, because as children of God, we have a deep respect for one another's dignity. We are not fundamentally materialistic. There's a spiritual base that unites us. The thing I see happening is that that goose that laid the golden egg is being poisoned. And the well from which we've drawn the waters of life has been infested with all kinds of impurities and viruses. For we have been subject to some of the most erratic and unjustifiable judgments of the courts without any precedence and any documentation. In 1962, they have said that there may be no prayers, non-sectarian or otherwise, in any school. In 1963, they said, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and have been psychologically harmful to children but they never documented it. In 1967, they said the word God must never appear, lest it create some ideas in the minds of some of the students, and that would be religion, and that's wrong. They've left our founding fathers out of their books because when the founding fathers wanted to quote some documentation to authenticate their ideas and ideals, 94% of the quotes were from the scripture. So how can you quote them in an organization where you cannot mention the name of God? In 1980, they said, take down the Ten Commandments. 
in these last 35 years, we've done a U-turn. No one has said where we're going, and no one has spelled out a better alternative except to turn their backs upon our heritage. Until now, we've become in the industrialized world number one in violent crime and number one in divorce and number one in teenage pregnancies and number one in voluntary abortions and number one in illegal drug trade and number one in illiteracy. And we wonder why? I love my heritage and I'm sure you do. And if we want to know what it is, we need but to look at the documents. For the nation has been blessed because its God was the Lord. And now that we've turned our backs, it's no wonder the things are happening about us as they are. What we need to do is what Paul said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 1, pray, first of all, for the kings and the authorities. I want to ask you, how often do you do that? Authorities are those persons who can change your life tomorrow and who have been changing our lives. They affect our children, our homes, the way we function in our jobs. They are beginning to tell us in all social areas how to behave and what is accepted and what isn't. Should we not pray for them? They have a very important place. And it's prayer that moves them, for they are under the control of our God. Scripture tells us that it's the Lord that moves the hearts of kings and those in authority. Should we not pray that he will live in their hearts? Ought they not to know that they're responsible to him? And I wonder how many of them know this. Our forefathers did. Those who lead us need to know at whatever level of government they have authority and responsibility. We need to participate, dear friends. We need to be joyous and humble and faithful citizens who carefully read the scripture mandate and learn that we should render to Caesar what Caesar's, which includes not only prayers, but in our context, participation. It means not only that we vote, but that we stand up and are counted, and that we who I believe are in a vast majority in this country need to speak about the things that people are beginning to hunger for, the sacred and the spiritual, which one day had a known base that was found in the scripture. And so celebrate this holiday for we have the freedom to participate and we have the protection of our leaders to worship and our prayers personal and corporate 
and our participation individually and collectively can be for a better tomorrow when the nation will be blessed because it's God will be our Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for such a rich heritage. Forgive us for forgetting or ignoring it. Make us a faithful people, a people of prayer, a people of participation. And may this great land be a leader not only in economic affairs, May it become once again a leader in spiritual matters, in the moral and ethical basis for the relationships that exist between us all, as well as a relationship to you, our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.